to the back. <clears throat> For the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. You know, as we come to the close of 2014 and look forward to 2015, many of us think about the year past and the year to come. For many of you, the year past meant some great things happened in your lives. You found happy occasions. You were rejoicing in time that you were able to spend with loved ones. and You found 2014, for the most part, to be a great year, and you're thankful for it. For some of you, you had profound challenges. Maybe it was health issues, the loss of a job. Maybe it was having loved ones move away or pass on. When you look back on 2014, you think, wow, <laughs> glad that's over with. But then as we look forward to 2015, we wonder, what will it bring? We hope that it will maybe be a better year if you had a challenging one this year. We hope for opportunities to do things that we maybe weren't able to do this year. Sometimes we're sort of like a Cubs fan or a Bears fan where this is going to be our year. It's going to turn around. Yeah, right. <laughs> but when we look at opportunities, what we really want to understand is we have to plan for, pray for, and prepare for the really important opportunities. And those are the eternal ones. Opportunities that last. One of the greatest opportunities that we can have is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone. Because that brings about eternal changes, eternal things. We have the opportunity to influence eternity by sharing the gospel. And as Alan pointed out this morning, it's something that God has called us all to, to share Christ with neighbors and family members and friends and then even some of those outside possibilities like the prisons and the nursing homes and places where you might not expect to see fruit from sharing the gospel but perhaps are ripe for harvest. We want to make the most of the opportunities that God gives us. And that's what we want to see here in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11, where we're going to see that there are some opportunities for the gospel that are just ripe for harvest. Sometimes when we share the gospel, it's like that person is ready and waiting for someone to come to them and share the truth of the gospel. And that's what we're going to find in the story of Lydia as we look here in Acts chapter 16 at verses 11 through 15. So let's look at these verses. The verses that we find first, 11 and 12, are sort of transitional verses. If you remember, the Apostle Paul had been given a vision where he was to move from where he planned to share the gospel in modern-day Turkey 
He wanted to share it in a province that was called Asia, not the Asia that we think of, but a province, a Roman province, right there on Turkey. And God changed his mind. He shared with Paul through closing doors of opportunity and through giving him a vision that he wasn't to share where he had anticipated, that he was to go to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, And he was to go there because God had been preparing the soil for the gospel. So in order for the gospel to take place, God had to prepare Paul and his team's hearts, but he also had to prepare the hearts of those who would hear the gospel. And that's what Paul found. He found seekers who were ready and prepared by God to hear the gospel. So in 11 and 12 it says, From Troas we put out to sea, And we sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, a leading city of that district in Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, by the we in this passage, Luke included himself in the company. So here is Luke joining Paul and his party to go to Philippi. And when we look historically at Philippi, you know what we find? We find a city that was extremely wealthy, but also a city that was extremely idolatrous. They followed the Greek gods. There was spiritism. There were all kinds of belief systems and cults that were right there in Philippi. And so perhaps Paul knew of its reputation as God was directing him to go to Philippi. And perhaps he went with some trepidation, but he went. And what did he find when he went to Philippi? Normally, when Paul would share the gospel, he would go to a synagogue and he would start with the Jewish community first and then branch out to the Gentiles. But look at what we find here. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 16 says this, On the Sabbath we went outside city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer And we sat down and began to speak with the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Here's what Paul found. He found a community of women who met outside the city gates of Philippi. Now, we don't know why they gathered by the river outside the city gates, Perhaps there was such a small contingency of followers of Yahweh that they just went somewhere outside the city to gather. But what we do know about these women is this. They were seeking God. They were worshipers of the one true God. Now, in a city that was dedicated to idolatry, this would have been a stand that would have been difficult to take. And yet, what do we find? This faithful group of women. And what stands out to me in this story is this. This is the second time that God has directed an apostle to go to Gentiles in a specific place and to share the gospel. The first occurrence was Cornelius. And very much like Lydia, Cornelius had a heart that was ready for the gospel. He wanted to hear the gospel and he was waiting with bated breath to hear what Peter would share with him. And now we find Lydia, and the same thing is taking place. 
Now, when we hear that there was a group of women and they were gathering for prayer, we look at that and say, well, that's great, man. We have ladies' prayer meetings here at the church, so it's not an unusual thing for ladies to gather for, for prayer. But what stands out about this is in the first century culture, for God to send his apostle to Gentile women to share the gospel was politically and culturally incorrect by their system. But God had a heart for Lydia. He had a heart for those other women. And when the scripture describes Lydia, what do we find? It describes a woman who was a worshiper of God. The idea is this. She had gone some of the way in Judaism in worshiping Yahweh, but she had become not become a, a full-fledged proselyte. In other words, she hadn't joined all in to the Jewish community. She simply worshipped God and wanted to learn more about him and lift up his name and praise him and worship him. So she was interested in the things of God. And what did God do? God provided a way for her to hear the gospel. He had been preparing her heart to hear the gospel. And after preparation of her heart, what did he do? He sent Paul to go and share the gospel with Lydia. So here is this receptive woman ready to hear. And here comes Paul and he shares the gospel. And notice what it says in this passage. After it says she was a worshiper of God, it says right at the end, of that 14th verse, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. That brings us to our next point. Salvation comes when God opens the heart to the truth. God does a work in sending the one who will carry the gospel but God also does a work in the heart of the one who will hear the gospel. It is God at work on both ends. And here he is working in the heart of this Gentile woman. He isolates her and moves Paul 125 miles across land and sea to bring the gospel to Lydia. Right there in Philippi. And she's receptive. She responds to the gospel message. She is ready to hear and act on what she hears. This worshiper of God. This person who was ripe for harvest. What a blessing that was. What a great opportunity that was. But it doesn't end there. Look as the 15th verse continues. And it says, When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to stay to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Isn't it great that not only did Lydia respond to the gospel, but her entire household now, because Lydia was a seller of purple, we can assume that she was probably a well-to-do woman. And the fact that she invited all of Paul's party to come to her house and stay, again, a woman who had means. The selling of purple was a big business in those days because it was the cloth of royalty. And so as she was selling this, she was selling it to well-to-do people. And we can assume that she made a great deal of money 
But she had perspective. She knew what was more important, the truth of God. And so here is Lydia, and her household would have been her immediate family, but it would also entail slaves and servants and others who would have been in her household. All of them heard the gospel, and they responded, and they believed, and they were baptized. God did an amazing work. Wouldn't it be great if when we shared the gospel, it was always like that? Man, they're waiting to hear what I share. And then when I share it with them, they say, hey, I've got people I need you to go tell this to, too. And we go and we tell it to them, and they all respond, and we're just like, man, this is easy. This is great. I love it when opportunities come about like this. But then we move into the next opportunity. And when we come to the 16th verse, we find that things don't always go that easy. Sometimes when we share the gospel, we're going to find spiritual obstacles that need to be overcome. And what we find first in this spiritual obstacle is Paul clashing with spiritism and the cultural belief system that had deceived the people of Philippi. So look at the 16th verse, and in 16 and 17, we see this spiritism and these cultural beliefs. Verse 16 says this, once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, let me let you in on a clue. This spirit who predicted the future, not the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual being, a demon. And this girl predicted the future by the power of this demon. Let me help you understand something. These demons that help people predict the future, place curses on people, that are guiding people as spirit guides, are not of God. They're of Satan. The particular word that's used here for this slave girl as a fortune teller, as a soothsayer, is a word in the original language that is python. And we think of it as a snake, but the word actually was a group of oracles and prophets that lived in ancient Greece. And they would be consulted when somebody wanted to know the future or when they wanted to go off to war or when they were ready to make a big business decision. And so here, this girl had this demon who allowed her to do this and had given her a lot of importance in the community. And her slave owners had profited from her intensely. So this girl comes along who has this spirit and this ability to predict the future, and it says she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So they're profiting from her powers and abilities, which really weren't her powers, but the powers of a demon. So this girl was actually a victim. She was held captive by a demon, and she was basically exploited by her masters. So then we find some follow-up about this girl in verse 17. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, when we look at verse 17, we think, oh, Paul and his band, they're, they're getting an endorsement. Here is this girl in the community that has all the people following what she has to say because she's demonstrated some prowess in being able to foretell the future. So isn't that a good thing that she comes along and says they're servants of the Most High God and they're telling people how to be saved? And I would say to you, no. You see, the girl was saying this by the power of a demon. And this demon wasn't doing this so that people would follow Paul and his group. This demon was doing it to deceive when we see servants of the Most High God, we think in our filter, don't we? We think in terms of Jehovah, the God of creation. But understand that the people that she's talking to are not followers of Jehovah. They're followers of Zeus. So the Most High God to the Greeks wouldn't have been Jehovah. They wouldn't have the context for that understanding. When they hear the Most High God, they're thinking in terms of Zeus. So while the words seem good to us, to the people who were hearing it, there was confusion. And you know, that's something that we find as we share the gospel, isn't it? Sometimes we can use words and we think that these words are really communicating something. But in reality, the hearers of those words are confused by them until we define them and point them in the right direction. So here is this girl confusing things. These are servants of the Most High God. That God could have been Zeus. That God could have been anyone. And this is something that missionaries face all the time. When I was serving in India for the week that Paula and I went there to minister in the churches, one of the greatest challenges that they had in India was when you share the gospel, the Hindus are very happy to add Jesus to their list of gods. They have millions of them. What's another god to worship to them? No big deal. We'll add him to the list. Paul also encounters this when he goes to Mars Hill in the Greek culture, right? When he went to Athens, there are these philosophers sitting around and they're talking about all of the latest ideas and philosophies and they had a platform to the unknown God. Just in case they missed one. There's the platform. So when this demon girl says, they're servants of the Most High God, what was she communicating? Really not that much. And then, to be saved. In the Greek culture, there was the idea of deities coming and delivering people in that culture as well. But again, until and unless they understood the message of the gospel, it would never come to saving faith. And so Paul had this to contend with. And what we find is this. He had to put a stop to it. Coming to the 18th verse, we find that Paul begins to deal with this girl. In verse 18 it says, she kept this up for many days and then finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, 
In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left. Now, this is a sign. And again, when we read this, we think, man, that's a good thing. She's no longer under the control of the spirit. She's been delivered. But understand, in their culture, particularly to the slave owners, there was self-interest. And it was more important to them than the truth. They could have looked at what Paul did and they could have said, man, look at the power of God. He has power over the spirits. And he's able to cast them out. But instead, what did they do? My prophet, figuratively and literally, went out the window. I no longer have a prophet, so therefore I can no longer find prophet. I'm upset. He was upset. This owner and this group of owners, they were mad that this girl had been delivered. And so they wanted Paul and Silas and Luke and this entire group to pay. Rather than looking at the truth and responding to the truth, they dug their heels in deeper. And they became angry with the messengers. Look at verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They wanted to throw Paul and Silas, the leaders of the group, into jail. And what do we find? Lo and behold, they accomplished that very thing. They whipped the crowd up into a frenzy. And they were appealing to the crowd's nationalism, and they were trying to get the crowd all animated and aggravated at Paul and Silas. And they wanted them to stop the work of the gospel. But understand this. This battle was not just a battle with men, the slave owners. This was a spiritual battle as well. I believe that Satan would have inspired and encouraged the crowd to be as angry and as opposed to Paul and Silas as they could possibly be to try and stop the work of the gospel. But then we find a twist in the story. In verse 22, we find that the crowd is starting to really get geared up and amped up into fury. And what we're going to see is that even in a hopeless situation like this, saving faith can come at times and in places where we least expect it. This seemingly disastrous circumstance really opened doors for the gospel. So let's see that. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Now Luke 
blows by this so fast, I don't think we're thinking about what really happened to Paul and Silas. Being beaten meant that there were Romans who had a bucket of rods that they used as intimidation. They were the lictores. And they would pull out one of those rods from this bucket of rods and they would beat someone. It was a public caning. So think about what that would feel like. You have a rod about an inch in diameter being wielded by a professional who knows how to inflict pain and he's bringing it across the back of Paul and Silas. And it was meant to intimidate them, to shut them down, to cause them to stop sharing the gospel. So here are Paul and Silas. They're being beaten severely by these rods. And then the text goes on to say this, verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Now again, when we think of prison, what is our image of prison? We think of cells that are pretty spartan. They have a steel toilet and a steel sink and some bunks, a concrete floor and some bars. Not a place that any of us want to be, but if you can imagine what a prison in the first century would be like, just imagine a place of filth, of stench, a place that's probably in the lower regions of the jail, probably more like a dungeon than a prison cell that we would picture today. And so here are Paul and Silas, beaten and bloody, taken to this inner cell, filthy and dank and dark. And they're put into rough-hewn stocks which constrain their hands and their feet. And so they're forced to bend over. And their backs are laid open. And with being forced into this position, those wounds would have been opened. And in pain, in such filthy conditions, infection is sure to set in. And all of that because they shared the gospel. So they're thrown into this prison, verse 23, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And then in verse 24 it says, upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. And then verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Can you imagine the shock that those jailers and other inmates would have felt after being beaten and thrown into this dungeon in stocks to hear music, praise, thanksgiving, prayer being offered to God by Paul and Silas. I don't know about you, but for me, wouldn't it have been easy to say, God, you sent me here from Turkey, and we're not talking Turkey anymore. We're talking Philippi. And now I come in obedience, and I'm beaten, and I'm thrown into the dungeon and in stocks. What gives? Wouldn't it be tempting to feel that? 
but not Paul and Silas. Praying and praising come from their lips. And notice that 25th verse. The other prisoners were listening to them. Even in this dark place, the word was going out. Because the word never returns void, and Paul and Silas knew that. And just as God had appointed Paul and Silas to go to the place outside Philippi by the river to meet Lydia, God had appointed Paul and Silas to be in this dungeon to meet a Philippian jailer. Preparing the hearts, perhaps, of the prisoners as well. As Alan pointed out this morning, those in prison are often hopeless, certainly helpless. But here are Paul and Silas offering the gospel of hope. And then look at what happens in verse 26. (coughs) Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Now, believe it or not, I was reading some commentaries and some of the commentators were questioning, how could this be? An earthquake couldn't be strong enough to break the chains. And I look at them and I say, duh, it's the work of God. It's a miracle, okay? God did a miracle. We don't have to find a naturalistic explanation for what God chooses to do. So, picture this. This dungeon, doors flying open, chains falling off, and yet, not one escape. Not one of the prisoners looked and said, hey, let's book it. All of them were looking and they were waiting to see what would happen. And so, this is where we continue in the story and we find what did happen. Verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, when we look at this through our Western eyes, we say, well, what gives? Why would he kill himself? Understand this. The jailers in the Roman system were responsible for their prisoners. Escape of prisoners meant death and shame. And so in Roman thinking, in their worldview, it made more sense to take your life with the sword by thrusting it into you to avoid shame. And so this is what his plan was. He's looking and he's saying, this is it. But then look at verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. God's mercy and grace are amazing, aren't they? Here were people who deserved to be in jail, probably. Here was a jailer who had beaten and bludgeoned people and had been unmerciful to Paul and Silas and to others. And yet what happened? God, by His grace, showed tremendous mercy for this man who was so brutal. So what happens? We find that simple faith opens the way to salvation for anyone. Look at verse 29. 
The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think he was talking about more than just his physical deliverance because as Paul and Silas were uttering hymns and prayers, I think that the people around could hear, perhaps during all of that singing and praying, this jailer had fallen asleep, but God had planted a seed for the gospel and what he had heard. And so he's asking, what do I do to be saved? Then look at verse 31. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Here in a hopeless situation, in the last place that you would imagine that the gospel would go out and be effective, a jailer finds the way to a relationship with God. And the gospel that is given is so simple. It's not what you do to be saved, jailer. It's who you believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. So look at verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and his family were baptized. They came to faith. And it was a faith that was willing to take a stand. We will be baptized to show our commitment to this faith. That faith immediately produced works. Mercy and ministry to Paul and Silas. And a family that takes the step of obedience to being baptized. In the last place that you would expect, God was at work. It's tremendous how God works with opportunities. We see those opportunities like Lydia that are just there. And you look and you say, I can't believe it's this easy. Do they really understand? Are they really picking up what I'm putting down? Are they grasping the truths that I'm sharing? And then we find that opposition that sometimes comes along as we share the gospel. We look and we say, man, I am not getting through. I'm sharing the gospel and I'm finding more rejection and hatred than acceptance. And then we find those situations where we look and we say, all is lost. And yet there is God in the midst. And he's doing something amazing. The wonder of opportunities is this. We never know how they're going to come out. Our responsibility is just to be faithful. To go through them and leave the results with God. This morning, I encourage you as the church to think about and pray about opportunities that you might have to share the gospel in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever God brings you, it's the greatest thing you can do. Share 
and leave what happens to God. That's the most important thing we can take away from this passage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text.